Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Turn to Revelation, the second chapter this morning. And before you get all excited or worried, I am not going to get kooky or wonky on you, as many people do when they tell you to turn to this book. It is the same, and it should be interpreted the same as the rest of the Word of God. We are going there for a specific purpose as we continue our study, Christ Church, the dearest place on earth. We are going there specifically for the next seven weeks to investigate and to see some examples of churches that five out of the seven of them had issues. The other two are great examples of encouragement of what we should be as a church. But as we look today, we are going to see a bold admonition to Christ's church. We are going to see in the weeks to come many bold admonitions from Christ to His church. Today we will look at the first of these examples as we investigate these seven literal churches of Asia Minor. These are not symbolic in any means. These historically are true churches that once existed. Unfortunately, they are now ruins. What once was. But from these churches, we can gain much insight. We can gain much revelation. We can gain much encouragement. We can gain even much conviction. Because of every one of the churches that we are going to be looking at in the next weeks to come, you could, if not careful, you could fall into the same trap as any of them, or into all of the traps that they fell into. So I want us to examine that this, this morning. We know that we are coming off of messages in this series, the basic, basic attributes of Christ's church, where we looked at that. The biblical assignment of Christ's church, make disciples, we covered that. The beneficial accountability of Christ's church, the brutal adversary, Satan, comes against Christ's church, the blessed authority in Christ's church, which is Jesus the head of his body. We've seen the blatant assault on Christ's church, how even in our midst today, false teachers are creeping in, trying to throw people into confusion about the truth. We looked last week at the bestowed advisor of the church, the blessed Holy Spirit who lives in all who truly trust in Christ. And today we will begin looking, and I say begin because as I've already noted, this will be a series within a series, but an important one. We will begin to look at the bold admonitions to Christ's church. We'll be looking again at those seven literal churches and Christ's examination of those churches. Why? Because, again, we're prone to make those same errors. As your pastor, I don't want us falling into those mistakes, those traps, So we will see as we uncover this first church at Ephesus, 
Jesus is literally going to write a review. And that's language that you can all understand in our time, right? Before you eat at a new restaurant, you read the review, what people say. Some of those people you'll never meet. Most of them you won't, but you trust them. I don't know why. But Christ, when he reviews the church, is absolutely and positively right. He can be trusted in what he says. And so let me give you a little bit of background into Ephesus before we actually read the text. I want you to see that Ephesus is the uncompromising yet unloving church. They were big on not compromising. We're going to see they didn't compromise on morality. They didn't compromise on doctrine. They didn't compromise with false teachers. We're going to see they had a detrimental problem. We're going to talk in detail about that problem today. But Ephesus in its day, we know that Paul visited here in his second missionary journey. We see that in the book of Acts, in the account of that. We see that this was in its day the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. You say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, it was a very in- influential place. And it's important that we note that in studying Ephesus. The population of this specific place in the days of Scripture was 250 to 500,000 people. You say, well, that doesn't seem that big because you live in a world that is far more heavily populated than the world of that day. So as we look at this, we see that four travel routes would converge here at Ephesus in combination with that seaport that was there and all the influence that was there because it was a very important city in Asia Minor. That there was much influence from the entire Roman Empire here in this area. And we know with Roman influence comes Roman paganism, idol worship, the worship of false gods and false goddesses. In fact, this was the home of Artemis, the goddess of fertility, also known as Diana. You can study her throughout history. You can go to Ephesus even today and see the ruins of the temple of Artemis, at the time one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of paganism. Not only was there the worship of Artemis there at Ephesus, but there were also up to 14 other pagan deities that the people of Ephesus worshipped. So it was steeped in idolatry, but also in sexual immorality because of the influence of Artemis. Because she was that goddess of fertility, they would employ temple prostitutes, and people would go there, and they would somehow worship Artemis through sexual immorality. So you see that this was a Very immoral place. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, if you will remember with me, we come across a man named Demetrius. And Demetrius was a silversmith. And what he would do is he would build shrines for Artemis. It was a business in the day. He would build these shrines, and then he would sell these shrines, and then these pagans would worship these idols. And Demetrius got all shook up when he heard about the message that the Apostle Paul and those who were the comrades of the Apostle Paul were preaching. They were preaching Christ and Christ alone. And he knew this, that if it was Christ and Christ alone and people stopped worshiping the false goddess Artemis or Diana, then he would go out of business. And so what he did is he provoked a riot. You can go back again in Acts chapter 19 and you can see this. He provoked a riot and 
was all because the paganism of his day was challenged. It was not only the home of the temple of Artemis, but it was also the home of the temple of Domitian, that Roman emperor. This emperor considered himself, as did all Roman emperors, to be like God, a little g-god, of course. But they thought that they were something to be worshipped. And so you have there in Ephesus the worship of Artemis, the worship of the emperor, the worship of 14 other false deities. It is a place steeped in paganism. Now, the error that the Christian made in the minds of these pagans is this. They would have had no problem if the followers of Christ said, okay, we'll worship these other gods alongside of Jesus. But that's not what they would do because we know that that's not what we are to do as mandated by Scripture. We are to worship, as we sang a moment ago, Christ and Christ alone. That's it. And so what caused the church at Ephesus to face much persecution was this, that they adhered to worshiping Christ alone. They would have been completely fine had they worshipped Christ and Artemis and Christ and Domitian or Christ and whatever pagan deity they chose to worship. However, they faced great persecution and even death because they knew to worship Christ and Christ alone. They took a stand and they paid the price. We know this hub of immorality though vile and wicked, was also a place of a small group of believers. And we can learn about this small group of believers under the influence of Paul through the work, the missionary work of Aquila and Priscilla, who we see there along with Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. We know that later. Young Timothy was left there to pastor this group of people. You say, well, why all of the history? Why, why do we need to know this? Because I want you to understand, this was a real place, a real church who lost their way. And I want you to understand this because we are a real church. And a real church could always be in danger of losing her way. And so we read this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the letter that is presented to the church at Ephesus, but that we, in 2023, can gain great value from. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. That word angel is better translated messenger. We can come to this conclusion, as most good scholars do, that he's talking about the pastor's of that church, to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, the messenger, the spokesperson. Why is it important that we see that he addresses the pastor? Because we're going to see this. We know this to be true. As goes the pastor, so goes the individuals in the body, so goes the church as a whole. And he addresses the pastor. He says this, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Ooh, that sounds like you got kooky. Just go back to chapter 1 at the beginning. It's going to interpret that for you. You don't have to get all weird. Watch what it says. Verse 19 of chapter 1. Write, therefore, what you have seen. He's telling this to John. What is now and what will take place. What you've seen, what you're getting now, getting at this moment. 
what is now in time and what will take place in the future. Watch this, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. Here we go. You want interpretation. Don't look into weird charismatics to give you interpretation of this. Just read the scripture. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers. It's the seven pastors of these specific seven churches. Of the seven churches. And the seven lampstand are the seven churches. Now, I have heard quite often from someone, I can't think now of his name, who reminds the church that he has been sent to be the messenger of every time they meet, that you are what? Light in darkness. You are a lampstand in this dark world. We continue to read. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, the presence of the Lord in the church. You see that there. He says, I know your deeds. Of course he does. Your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Verse 4. Pay attention to this. Carries much weight. Yet I hold this against you. He said, you're doing a lot of good things, church at Ephesus. Your deeds are known. The life you live is being seen. Your perseverance has been noted. Your discernment has been noted. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. He says in verse 5, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We look at this this morning in light of Scripture, and we see that the church of Ephesus, though they had some things right. They had a major deficiency. And Jesus is boldly admonishing this church. We're going to look at that today. The church at Ephesus. And in looking at the church of Ephesus, I want us to examine ourselves. The church of Key Life Fellowship here in New Caney, Texas. As... The Lord is in our presence. And as his light shines forth from us, so that we make sure that that light is never removed. We see that Ephesus was uncompromising in morality, but unloving. If you're taking notes, write that down. They were uncompromising in morality, but they were unloving. He said there in verse 2, I know your deeds and your hard work, and your perseverance. Here they were in the middle of this cesspool of sexual immorality and sin. Yet, Jesus says, I know that you're moral in your deeds. 
I know that you have not given in to the immorality of your day. Uh, We can look around in our society. Aren't we being inundated with immorality in our culture and in our day? He commends them for this. He says, you're not immoral. You live biblical lives. You have biblical convictions. Persevere in hard work. He's talking about our service for the Lord. He's saying you work hard for the kingdom. Yet. He says you have the deeds. Those deeds are important. You have the hard work and those, that hard work is important. That service, important. Because James said this. He said faith without works is what? Dead. And if you claim to have it, you don't have the works to back it up. It's not real, authentic, saving faith. He says, you have the deeds, and I see that. You have the hard work, and I see that. You have the perseverance, and I see that. I see that you are uncompromising in your morality in this world that you live in, Ephesus. Yet, three-lettered word that ought to grip us this morning, it grips this pastor, yet, They had forsaken their first love. Yet they had waned in their preeminent love for Christ. This church had come a long way in a short time as far as their deterioration is concerned. In fact, Paul writes to this church earlier on in his epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 23. Watch what Paul says to them prior to this. He says in verse 23, Peace to, you, to the brothers and, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Paul writes to the Ephesian church there in Ephesians chapter 6, not quite a generation before we see them being addressed here in Revelation, and they have already lost the undying love that he speaks of there in Ephesians chapter 6. Isn't it true that it only takes one generation for a church to die, for their love for Christ to grow cold. As your pastor, I stand here this morning, not terrified in the sense that somehow God has sovereignly lost control or terrified in the sense of where it's fear that has become sin. I stand here this morning terrified that we will not heed this warning, that we will be satisfied with just being moral in our lives, that we will be satisfied with just serving the Lord and and giving hard work and diligence to that, persevering when the world around us seems to crumble. I would commend the church at Key Life Fellowship for that. My fear is this, that we would fall into the same trap that this church fell into. You say, do you really think that we're prone to that? Absolutely, we are prone to that. That is why this admonition is so important this morning for us to look at. Here at Ephesus, though they are commended that they are uncompromising in their morality, they're unloving toward Christ. And morality without love for God and for others is the same venom of the legalistic Pharisees who hated Christ. Please see that. They were morally upstanding. They stood for all their traditions, religious in every way. 
yet hated and murdered the very Messiah who came to deliver his people. These people were uncompromising in morality, but unloving. Church, please hear the warning there. Secondly, we see this. They were uncompromising in doctrine and in discernment, but still unloving. Look at the second part of verse 2 there in chapter 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Verse 6, we jump down there and he says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What is he saying here? He's saying, I see a church who's uncompromising in your doctrine and in your discernment. You're not caving when the rest of the world caves. You're not going woke when everyone else is going woke seemingly around you. You're not bending the sound biblical teaching. In fact, you were adamant about it. You refused to abandon sound doctrine and accept people who claim to be apostles who are not. These are good things. We can't abandon sound doctrine. They were doing what they were supposed to do on that front. In fact, we know Titus tells us this in verse 9 of chapter 1 that we must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that was taught. He tells Titus so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. They were doing this just as we at Key Life Fellowship do this. We're not afraid to say that we are going to be biblical in our doctrine. We're not afraid to say that we are going to be sound in our theology. We're not afraid to confront and to discern false teachers and to call them by name. However, if we do all of those things and abandon our love for Christ, those things are useless. They refuse to embrace sound, unsound doctrine. They refuse to embrace false teachers, false teaching, namely Nicolaitans. What did they teach? What did they believe? You do a little history, a little research, you will find that their teachings stem from Nicholas of Antioch. Most scholars would agree. Nicholas of Antioch, most probably one of the ones mentioned in Acts chapter 6 of the seven who were given the responsibility of deacons. You say, a deacon defected? Judas defected. Apostates or apostates or apostates. There could be some in the room here today. What he did in his teaching, he led people astray by introducing antinomian doctrine. What is antinomian? You ought to know this by now. It is against the law. It means this, that since we have grace, we can live any way that we want to live, and the commands of God, they don't really matter anymore. Now, can you imagine that type of teaching in Ephesus? Oh, it would look like America, right, where we can go party it down, on Friday and Saturday night, and then jump in church on Sunday morning, I hadn't feel no conviction about that whatsoever. Can you imagine at Ephesus, these people would go out to the temple prostitutes and commit sexual immorality and worship pagan idols, and then drift on back into church on Sunday morning? Hey, we get the best of both worlds. We got paganism and sexual immorality, and a bunch of emotional hype, and we get Jesus too. The problem with that is you can't have both. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. But yet the church at Ephesus took a stand against the Nicolaitans and said, we're not going to listen to these false teachings. They recognize, as Jude warns, that there will be those certain men whose condemnation was written about who creep in, slip in, 
and introduce godless teaching to you. That teaching exchanges the grace of God for a license for immorality. That's what the Nicolaitans did. That's what the Ephesians are standing against. Uncompromising and sound doctrine and discernment, but yet they were unloving. Unloving. They've lost sight of Christ. Oh, dear church, will you hear me today? We can be doctrinally sound, theologically right and true, biblically on course with our understanding and our interpretation, and yet lose our first and preeminent love for Christ. Be warned, church, we can get so caught up in sound doctrine and theology that we take our eyes off of the true prize, which is Christ. I'm so thankful for the men of God who join each week on Thursday, and, and they are committed to learning sound biblical doctrine and truth and theology. Let me say this to each of you, man. If that is the extent of it, and you abandon the love of Christ even for sound doctrine and sound theology, you have missed it, just as the Ephesians missed it. Are these things important? Yes. Many of you know me well enough to know these things are very important to me. Good theology, sound doctrine, biblical truth, of utmost importance, but all of them second place to my preeminent love for Christ. You must have that supreme love for the King. In fact, it is sound doctrine, biblical truth that should lead us to a deeper love and obedience for Christ. Not away from that, as many people have fallen into that error, just as the Ephesians did. I'm afraid that if we who are adamant about sound doctrine, I'm afraid that if we are not careful, it will become all about sound doctrine and not about Christ. Please hear that, church. Why do I say that? I don't want you to fall into that trap of losing your first love. Oh, know this. I have examined my life. One who loves doctrine and theology. I have examined my life for the last two weeks. Is this really about my love for Christ? I've come to this conclusion. Yes, it is the love of Christ that propels me in everything that I do. But I had to examine myself, and I had to be honest with myself about that. I'm asking the same for you today. Would you examine yourself, and would you be honest about that today? And if you find a deficiency, would you do what we're going to see later as far as confession and repentance is concerned. They were an uncompromising church in doctrine and discernment, but they were unloving. We must be careful. Thirdly, they were an un uncompromising church in persecution, but they were unloving. Verse 3, he commends them for enduring hardship. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name. And have not grown weary. What is he saying? He's saying, I see what you're going through. You know what they were going through here? Uh, just imagine this with me. We're going to see it in our time if we're not already seeing it now. Where people will not discriminate against anyone except for a born again believer. 
Like, there are no rules against that. Here at Ephesus, there were people losing their jobs, being cut off from their families, being cut off from, cut, cut off from any trade. Remember, this was an important trade area. Four trade routes came here. Can you imagine as a believer, you, you had a business that had been handed down to you from your grandfather, from your father, now unto yourself, and you were trading in some business, and all of a sudden people would not trade with you because you were a Christian who said Christ and Christ alone. You would lose everything, and many of the Ephesians were losing everything for the cause of Christ. They knew what true suffering, and they knew what true perseverance in that suffering Look like they were enduring hardship. They were refusing to bow, or even to pretend to bow to the immorality and the idolatry of their day and of their culture, even if it cost to them their very livelihood. I know people who won't even share their faith in Christ because they're afraid that they're going to lose their job. Please see the example that you have right before your eyes today of people being commended. You've lost everything. You're enduring hardship. For my name's sake is what Christ said, because of me. Yet, in your forsaking of all of your sexual immorality and all of your pagan idolatry, you're forsaking of all of the things of your day, you've committed even a more heinous Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You've forsaken your first love. We as Christians can become passionate. Listen to me, church. We can become passionate in our fight against the immorality of our day and the culture of our day, so passionate that we forget about the most important passion in our life, and that is the passion that we have and the love that we have for Christ and Christ alone. Hear this message this morning. Yes, we should stand against immorality in our culture. And yes, we should stand against the idolatry of our culture. But our greatest passion and love should be Christ no matter what. Dear church, please hear this admonition this morning from the Lord that he's giving to the Ephesians that we are receiving now some 2,000 years later. I'm thankful that we are receiving it. Why? So that in our efforts to be uncompromising, we will not compromise our love for Christ. All of the above things that we have seen thus far, morals, doctrinal purity, suffering, hardship for our faith, all of those things are good things, aren't they? Those are commendable things. We, we, we see the love of God in commending the church first for that. But yet, without love, they're meaningless. Reminding us of what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says this in verse 1, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. To that, many of you would say, well, that's talking about your love for others. Yes, and your love for others is a direct reflection of your true love for Christ. Don't dare say that you love Christ and you're not loving others. 
That's the only evidence that anyone can really see. So he writes to this church, and he says, you are a church, and I want to commend you on some things, just as I pray that he would write to us, commending us of things, but I also pray that he would be honest with us about our deficiencies so that those deficiencies are not our downfall. He says you're uncompromising in your morality, but you're unloving. You're uncompromising in your doctrine and your discernment, but you're unloving. You're uncompromising in persecution and hardship, but you're still unloving. So what do we do with this? What it should cause us to do, again, as it calls me to do in studying and looking at this familiar passage of Scripture once again, it calls me to examine my life. Why would I examine my life? Because I really believe as goes the pastor, so goes the individual member, so goes the whole. I examine my life not only for you, for me, but for Christ's church. Christ's church. Oh, I pray that I never be the cause for the lampstand being removed from Key Life Fellowship. I pray the same for you. I pray that you never be the cause of the lampstand being removed from Key Life Fellowship to where we become, like we see so many times, just a social group. Or a building full of people not even sure what they're doing, just doing it because it's what they've always done. Oh, may it never be so. Here. It should cause us to ask ourselves this question, church. Ask yourself this question. Have you lost your first love? What if Jesus was writing a review of your Christian life today? Because as goes the individual, so goes the church. We're one generation away from all of you falling out of love with Christ, resulting in lampstand in the presence of God in this church being vacated? Have you lost your first love? A gripping question, isn't it? It's a gripping question that ought to cause us to ask another question. If I have lost my first love, what does that look like? What does that look like if I've lost my first love? I want to help you today. Because here's what it looks like. If you've lost your first love, there is a lack of recognition of Christ's preeminence in your life. You can't really sing with a whole heart, yet not I, but Christ. Because a person who is focused on passionate love for Christ, Christ is preeminent and supreme in every single area of their life. From their vocabulary to their vacations. What you do, what you say, where you go. Is Christ and his name of utmost importance in your life? You want to know? Have I lost my first love? Has Christ taken backseat to anything? To entertainment? To leisure? To your jobs? To your children? To your husbands? To your wives? If Christ is not preeminently loved above all those things, you are in danger, my friend. Please hear these words. Is Christ preeminent? Lack of recognition of the preeminence of Christ in your life is signs that you are losing or have lost your first love. 
Number two, a lack of obedience to God's Word. Are you obeying God's Word? John 14, 15, it ought to be fresh on our minds. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commands. Are you concerned with that? Are you expressing your love to Christ through keeping His commands? Not when it's convenient. But is that the driving force behind everything in your life? Yeah, not I, but Christ. Not what I want, not what I want to do, not what my fleshly desires are. Christ, His will as revealed in His Word. What does it look like if you've lost your first love? There's a lack of obedience to God's Word. Number three, a lack of true and intimate worship in your daily life. A lack of true and intimate worship in your daily life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, as our Scripture reading said, Jesus replied, verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What is he saying? With everything you are and everything you have, every fiber of your being, love the Lord your God. Do you have that kind of love? Is that expressed in true, intimate worship in your life? Here's the key for you to find out. Examine your prayer life. Examine your meditation upon the Word of God. You can find out very quickly by those two things what is really of utmost importance to you. In the time spent in prayer and in the time spent meditating on the Word of God. Oh, Any husband, any wife in this room would tell us this. It would bother me if my husband or my wife stopped communicating and communing with me. Would it not? Why is Christ not offered the same privilege? You are allowed to get upset and expect that he is okay with you not spending time in prayer and meditation on the Word of God. How do you think God communicates to us, and how do you think we communicate to Him? It is through prayer and meditation upon the Scriptures. You're not going to get a sign in the clouds. No many people in error are looking for those things. You're not going to get some audible voice out of heaven saying, Hey, Kirk, this is the Lord. Those days are over, and they only happen in small frequency, even in the Scriptures. But now we have canonized Scripture, the very Word of God. People come to me all the time, Kirk, I just don't feel like I'm as close to God as I used to be. He hasn't moved. He's immutable. Malachi says, I, the Lord your God, never change. He doesn't. Let's get to the root of it. You ask this question to that person who says, at one time I, I I felt so in tune to God, I felt His love. I desire to please him. Now something's wrong. I ask two questions. How much time are you spending in prayer? They say this, not much. How much time are you spending studying the word of God and meditating on those truths moment by moment in your life? Well, it's been a long time since I've even picked up my Bible. Well, how would that work out in your marriage relationship? If you just all of a sudden stop talking to your husband or stop talking to your wife for some long period of time, that eh, probably wouldn't be a harmonious marriage, would it? 
what he's telling the Ephesian church here, and what we must hear is this. That oftentimes we grow cold in our love for God. He has not changed. And the reason that we do is because we lack true and intimate worship in our life. Did you know that word worship means this, to kiss toward. It is an intimate term. Are you kissing toward God in your life? Do you love Him above all things? What does it look like? If you've lost your first love, a lack of recognition of Christ's preeminence, a lack of obedience to God's Word, a lack of true and intimate worship in your life, Mark it down, a cold prayer life and cold Bible study indicates a cold love for God. Your love has grown cold. And fourthly, a lack of love for others. In fact, Matthew 22, where we saw that the Lord commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He then goes on in verse 39 to say, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You don't know if you really have a passionate love for God in Christ. Do you love others with the love of Christ? Perhaps your love has grown cold. It will be indicated by your lack of love for others. Because your lack of love for others ultimately reveals your lack of love for God and your disobedience to Christ. Christ commands us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. He says this sums up the law and the prophets. Everything you see in the Word of God is summed up here. Let me just help you. If you say, well, I love others. I'm not talking about mushy love where you tell them what they want to hear. That's the world's kind of love. If you really love others, You will show that by sharing the gospel with the lost. You say, well, what do you mean? You can't claim to love someone if you don't care if they spend an eternity in hell. You can't even make a valid claim. In not sharing the gospel, you are showing that you don't love others and you don't love Christ who commanded us to go and share the gospel. It's that plain and simple. You say, man, I don't like that. That doesn't go down smoothly. It's not made to go down smoothly. I want you to be gripped by this message today so that we don't fall into the same error of the Ephesians. You can measure your love for others by do you care about their soul? Anybody can make a person a casserole. But do you love them enough to risk even your friendship with them, to tell them the truth that they are totally depraved and cut off from a holy God, and that unless they repent and turn to Christ, there is no eternal hope for them. Do you love them enough to do that? You answer that question. Do you love others? You show that by sharing the gospel first and foremost. Do you show that? By showing others the love of Christ through ministering to their needs. Showing them the mercy and grace that you've received, the compassion that you received. Don't say that you love God this morning. You don't show that kind of love for others. The two go hand in hand. One is the reflection of the other. 
So you ask the question, have I lost my first love? Answer it for yourself. Is there a lack of recognition of Christ's preeminence in your life? Is there a lack of obedience to God's word in your life? Is there a lack of true and intimate worship in your life? Is there a lack of love for others in your life? Displayed in sharing the gospel with them and ministering to their needs. I'm talking true needs, not thought needs, real needs. When you come to this conclusion, it ought to shake you up, shouldn't it? Aren't you thankful that the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword? It cuts to the even, even the marrow of the bone, dividing soul and spirit. It is that sharp. It has cut you this morning. There's hope. I'm thankful for that. That there is a verse 5 in Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Ephesus. Because if you find yourself in this place, as they found themselves in that place, forsaking their first love, what should we do about it now? Verse 5 tells us. He says this, the first thing, remember. Remember the height from which you have fallen. First, recall where you once were. I want you to actively do this in your brain. God has given you your brain here this morning, and it is a place where you store information. And what I want you to do for the sake of your soul, I want you to go back and to ask this question, has there ever been a time in my life where Christ was supreme and I loved him with more love than I loved anything else? If there hasn't been that time, you've not yet been saved. Today, repent of your sin and turn to Christ. You remember that day you were saved? You were so overwhelmed by the love of God that all you could do was love him with everything that you are and everything that you have. All the sin had been removed. You had been cleansed. You knew all to Jesus. I owe everything. You left that place in love with him. Why? Because he first loved you. Or go back to that place of first love where he first loved you. Has that happened in your life? Remember that. Recall that. That love for Christ. That was then expressed in true worship and intimacy. You didn't know how to study. You didn't know how to pray. But you found every waking hour consumed by the Holy Spirit and those gifted by God teaching you how to do those things so that you could love Christ more deeply according to his word. Recall that true love for Christ that was expressed in true worship and intimacy. Remember it. Remember that true love that was expressed in true obedience to God's word where you knew that you needed to be holy for the Lord your God was holy and that in your desire for holiness you were displaying a true and passionate love for Christ, your first love. Remember that. Recall that place in your life, your love for Christ, but also your love for others that was expressed by a desire to see the lost saved. Remember, <laughs> before you ever took any evangelism course and you had an, a burden for people's souls and all you could tell them about was how much Jesus loved you and that he died for you and you wanted to share with them that hope that you had newly discovered through the power of God. Oh, how so quickly... We fade from that, don't we? Oh, what a shame that we do. Church, let this wake you up. Recall where you once were, where you, where you were telling everybody you knew about Christ. Oh, you didn't know all the catchy words and 
all the theological definitions, all you knew was this. I was lost in my darkness and in my sin. I was in need of a Savior. And I learned that that Savior was provided for me 2,000 years ago where Jesus, the Son of the living God, God incarnate, died on a cross in my place. You don't have to know the term penal substitution. You can just say, He died in my place. And because He did, I love Him so much because He lavished His love on me that while I was still a sinner, before I ever got anything right, he loved me. Oh, you remember that time in your life? You had that desire to love others by seeing them saved and hearing the gospel. It was expressed not only in your desire to see them saved by sharing the gospel, your desire to serve one another, to love one another. Oh, may we never miss that element in this church. That our love for Christ is displayed in how we love others. Because if you truly love Christ, you'll love rolling your sleeves up, rolling your pant legs up and tucking the hem into your boots and getting to work for others, ministering to them and their needs. Remember when you were there, when you were anxiously desiring to serve the Lord in any capacity. Oh, I love to see it. Those people who are newly converted, who call the office the next week. What ministry can I get involved in? Well, you're probably not going to get in the pulpit this week. But you know what? We do need some guys who will take care of the grounds. We do need some folks who can clean the toilets. Would you clean the toilets? For Christ, oh, I love Him so much. I would clean messy toilets for him. Remember where you once were. Don't ever forget it. For you were willing to do anything where everybody was a nobody and Christ was everything. The Ephesians had fallen from that. He gives us the answer. What if I find myself cold in my love for Christ? Recall where you once were, your love for Christ, your love for others. Oh, if it's not where it once was or where it should be, it ought to shake you to the core this morning. What should happen next? He tells us. Read on. Verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. Repent. That's the next thing. <laughs> That's one thing to say, you know what? I don't have preeminent love for Christ in my life. My, my passion for Him is gone. I guess there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> That's not what Christ says. Christ is encouraging the, the Ephesians, repent, repent of that. Remember where you have fallen from. Recall when you once were in love with Christ and turn and get back to that place. Repent. What do you need to repent of? Whatever has caused you to lose your first love. There are only two categories. Pay attention to them. The author of Hebrews says this, to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles you and to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So let's talk about those things, those weights, those, se those uh, secular distractions, the worldly distractions that we all face. Are those the things that are causing you to lose your first love? 
Well, there are many people today who their first love is the lake or is the golf course or is the theater or is the ball field. These are secular distractions in and of themselves. They are not what we would call sinful or wrong until they take your eyes off of Christ and the worship of the one who is worthy of all of our praise. Repent this morning from those secular distractions in your lives. Parents, listen to me. Don't compromise worship for recreation. There are parents who are falling into this trap constantly chasing balls, whatever kind of ball it is. I don't care if it's a volleyball or if it's a baseball or if it's a football or a basketball. Chasing balls all across this country. And you know what you're doing? You're saying, I'm doing this so that my kid can go pro and, and, and or maybe first step, get a scholarship. Then he can go pro. And you're just dreaming, the American dream. You want to be rich off of your kids. Here's the thing. What if you just said this? And actually believe this. God is sovereign and whatever happens will happen. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We are going to focus on Him. How many of you believe in God's sovereign providence? If, you're, if your child is supposed to be a professional athlete, there's nothing you can do to stop it. There's nothing you can do to make it happen. So many people, aren't they? Caught up in all of this. Families out of church every weekend or every other weekend. Why? Worldly distraction. Well, my only day off was Sunday, and I wanted to go to the golf course, or I wanted to go fishing. And you know it's hunting season, Kurt. Yep. And I know this about all those fish and all those deer, because I used to idolize them too. I've lost my first love before because of those things. I know what it's like. And I will tell you this as clearly as I can. They are idols that distract you from worshiping the Lord, spending intimate time with Him. Repent of those secular distractions. What about the sinful disgraces? I'm, I'm talking about real life defined immorality. You have something in your life right now that you're holding on to. It's that little secret, that little pet sin that you hope no one finds about because you remove it from your history, but God knows your history. Ouch. What about those things? Men, do you actually think that you can spend that much time viewing sexually explicit images and remain having Christ as your first love? No, you are distracted by the lust of your flesh. Ladies, if you participate in it, same to you. It's becoming more and more common. Oh, I'm uncomfortable now. We're not supposed to talk about these things in church. That's why the churches are in the condition that they're in. They've lost their first love, and nobody explains to them why. Disgraceful things, sin. Is there sin in your life? You say, well, who are you to bring out my sin? No one. I promise, I struggle with sin as well. But what we must always do, we must always be conscious of the fact that we are going to struggle with sin this side of glory, and we must always be in a state of repentance. Perhaps it's those sinful disgraces, those sinful things that you're holding on to in your life. Release those things. Repent of those things today. And don't lie to yourself. 
If you say that you repent of something and you pick it back up this afternoon, you didn't really repent of it. Do I need to say that again so that it can be clear? You didn't really repent of it. And here's the thing. I'm not saying these things to beat you over the head so that you'll repent. If you realize today that you don't, as a believer, have preeminent love for Christ, if he's not your first love, I would be trying to find out what is causing this. Because I remember, right, when we go back and we say, here's where I loved him the most. What has changed? What's changed? It could be those secular distractions or those sinful disgraces that are in your life. Repent of them today. And then he says this in verse 5. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Go back to where you were. Go back there. You know where this all started? Your walk with Christ? Where he sovereignly drew you to faith and repentance. This morning as he draws you as a believer to repent and to trust in him. Go back to that place of humility and dependency upon him, realizing that you have nothing and you can gain nothing in and of yourself, that you need him. And see if you don't fall in love with Christ like never before. Go back to that place. Return to that which you have forsaken. He's saying return to Christ in your obedient love for Christ, expressed in your worship toward him, toward God, toward your obedience to his word. Your obedient love for Christ and your obvious love for Christ. And what is our obvious love for Christ? It's expressed in our service and our compassion towards others. When you are loving others, your love for Christ will be obvious. Is it obvious in your life this morning? But then he gives us an or. Warning. And again, this is the warning that as a pastor... causes me great fear. Oh, I'm not too big to say that I'm afraid of some things. My greatest fear in this world is that the work of God here would come crashing down because we, as sheep, have been careless. We, as leaders, have been careless. You say, well, Kirk, do you really think that would happen? Look at verse 5 there at the end. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'm a pretty tough guy. I'm not afraid of the boogeyman. I've been in places most of you wouldn't go into. Things that scare most of you don't scare me. I am a little afraid of the flying monkeys on the Wizard of Oz, but that's a whole other thing. Don't judge me. My greatest fear in this life is that my love for Christ would go cold, causing your love for Christ to go cold, and your love for Christ to go cold, and your love for Christ to go cold, and we as a whole grow cold in our love for Christ, and He remove the lampstand that was once here. May it not be so on our watch, church. May we not refuse to repent. Today you realize, I've lost my first love. Get on your face and admit it. Lord, I've lost my first love. Shower me with your love so that I remember where I've come from. Forgive me, Lord. 
letting these things in my life that have distracted me from the world and from sin spark a new fire and a new desire in me for you. See if he's not faithful to do that. It's his desire that we burn with fervency for him. Refusing to repent will bring God's disciplinary judgment upon this place, and I don't want to see that. The removal of the light was the end of the church at Ephesus. You can go there today and it's just ruins. No church meeting there, no church standing there. What a terrifying thought. What a terrifying thought that God, the same God in the Old Testament who wrote Ichabod upon the door, thy glory has departed. To do the same thing here lest we repent of our lack of love for Christ first and foremost. So do you really think it'll happen? Four to 5,000 churches in America will close their door this year. I don't know as to the reasons why they're closing their doors. Some of them were probably never churches to begin with. But I have to believe this. Some of them are closing their doors because they lost their first love. And they failed to repent. May it never be here. May it never happen here. If any of you have grown cold in your love for Christ, I implore you as your pastor, as your friend, as the overseer of your soul, I implore you this morning to repent and to return to your first love this day and every day after. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you today thanking you for the power of your word. God, I pray now that it be released among your people to cut, to break, to mend, to convict, to change, to do all that you have set out for it to do today. May those who have lost their first love in our midst, may they today remember, recall that place from which they have fallen. May they repent. May they trust you for forgiveness. And may they return to their first love this morning. We pray and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week, and remember, you are light in the darkness.